There we are. Very good. Thank you very much, Peter. And no need for what happened in a football match during the week there. Somebody fell from one tier of the stand down onto unoccupied seats below. Seemed to be doing okay, so we're happy enough about that. So uh, nobody had to go to the balcony and topple off to try and reach those notes here today. Returning back to Romans and to the chapter 1. Going to take a couple of topics today. One, and this is this morning one right now, atheism. Atheism. Tonight, assurance. So the broader subject is essentially this. Are we utterly unconvinced, or are we altogether persuaded of the truth as it is in Jesus? And rather than this morning just take atheism as a broad, broad topic, because it is that, we're narrowing it down to this element that is a key question within atheism that you'll be confronted with in the workplace. And if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in God, then they will be using this as the main plank of their argument why they don't. Why does a good God allow evil things? It's a technical subject. Some parts of it, I warn you, will be slightly technical, but hopefully not confusingly so. We're looking again at Romans chapter 1, and we'll read only verse 28, although the whole section 20 to 32 applies, but verse 28 now, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. In other words, we're right in Psalm 14.1, Psalm 53.1 territory right here. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. It's not that he actually believes the evidence stacks up this way, but he doesn't have room for God and doesn't want to have room for God in his life. And so he determines, I live as though God did not exist. So, as Romans puts it then, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, put them out. That's what they're saying. What does God do? He spoons back their own medicine to them. Okay then, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. So we let them have their way. He gave them what they wanted, a debased mind, because a mind without God is exactly that. And then they had to work through the consequences of their own choice. So, with the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together in prayer and seek His help here this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray for Thy blessing upon the Word of God today. We do ask 
that will lead us with clear thought on the topic that has been taken that is very relevant to the society in which we operate and live today. Come and speak to our hearts. Exalt Christ. Let Him be lifted up. Because no matter where we're coming from in life, no matter what the issue, the problem, the perceived obstacle is, Jesus Christ is forever the answer. Him hath God set forth. And we pray that He will be set forth again today, morning and evening. Come to our aid. May we know Thy great grace. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. According to the most recent census results for Northern Ireland, you and I should be meeting someone who subscribes to, I don't have any religion. Practically, I'm living as an atheist or an agnostic. We should meet that person in just about every third or every other home that we call it. Many of the Belfast wards returned results of between 35 and 45 percent who were professing in that census that we don't have any religion at all. Now, strangely enough, whenever our children's workers went out around the doors of this area on outreach a couple of Saturdays back, I think it's fair to say that none of us encountered a single one of these professed atheists. Now, they must have decided they were going to remain courteous to us, take the literature, wish us all the best, and stay tight-lipped on the subject of atheism. But when we do meet the atheist, and we do, and we will in the workplace, we will just around the community when we engage him or her, you'll find their focus will almost invariably come down to this. How could a loving God allow death and suffering and evil in his world? How many times have you heard that question? How many people have you met and they're using the present suffering and death in the world around them as an excuse as to why I don't believe in a God who was governing the world with wise and particular and kind Providence. It is so vital to have an answer. I think of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where we are prompted, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And if we are giving an answer here, and it'll be a reasoned answer, then we're going down the line of a justification of the goodness of God, and that is known as a theodicy. We're trying not to be too technical today, and we won't. And I need to get right into this thorny question here, one of atheism supposed 
trump cards. How could a loving God allow death and suffering and evil in His world? So, first of all, the rationale behind this atheistic question. The rationale behind this atheistic question. In other words, here's the argument that they come up with, expressed or stated here. And what they're saying is simply this, death and suffering are everywhere. No matter where I look, I have all the evidence I need of death and suffering. It is everywhere. And then they follow up by saying, but where's God? When you need Him to straighten it all out, where is he? We'll think of some examples here. Staggers me to calibrate in my mind that it was over 20 years ago that this happened. 11th of September 2001, that the Twin Towers came down, the Pentagon was attacked as well, other buildings in New York City and beyond. Uh, of course, Islamic terrorists uh, crashed those planes into those buildings, murdering over 3,000 people in the process. And a lot of people back then, they began to question why a loving God would allow sinful acts like that. And of course, that wasn't even close to the mass murders by evil men or regimes we have seen through the history of our world. For example, the Nazi regime, and it's working off, let me express it here, it's working off a foundation of evolutionary thought, Aryan race, supremacy of one race over another, and because of that they wiped out six million Jews and many others, and that was evolution where the rubber was hitting the road. Many people turned their backs on what they knew was happening when Auschwitz was in full flow and many other concentration and extermination camps as well. Now, if the people were turning their backs, turning a blind eye, was God doing the same? Why didn't He intervene to stop these atrocities? Of course, many things have happened in the natural world around us, recent events not caused by humans. A seven-magnitude earthquake devastated hitting on the 12th of January 2010, killing at least 220,000 people. A year later, a magnitude earthquake there of nine, and that was 1,000 times stronger than the one that hit Haiti, was suffered by Japan, followed by a tsunami. I think we can remember as well Indonesia in 2004. A lot of us can. Some of us certainly weren't even born then. But on the 26th of December of that year, that tsunami stretched into 14 countries and killed over 230,000 people. Huge numbers of dead, but even those pale into comparison when we think of some other natural evils. For example, there was the Black Death or the bubonic plague in the mid-14th century, wiping out, and figures are very hard to come by that are accurate there, but between 75 to 200 million people in Europe are maybe 45 to 50 percent of the population of that area. The devastating First World War, 9.7 military deaths, 
at least the same in terms of civilian deaths, bringing it up to 20 million in total. And if that wasn't bad enough, immediately after the First World War, we have the Spanish flu that killed at least 50 million people, or 3% of the world's population at that time. Many of those people would have been young, healthy adults that were wiped out. My great-uncle actually was one casualty in the middle of the 50 million there. In addition to these headline events, each of us coming close to home, we suffer pain, and we have grief in our hearts and bodies from time to time. There's illness comes, there's heartaches come, there are accidents that occur, there are physical disabilities or handicaps, eventually death comes knocking at all of our doors. I'm sure you've known the story of Joni Erickson Tadam paralyzed from the neck down when she was a teenager, but such a testimony for Jesus Christ over the years. Nick Vudishish, born without arms or legs, defied the odds, became an incredible motivational speaker, taking a message of hope across the world. But yet we look at these people and other instances of suffering and we say, how can an all-powerful, loving God allow suffering like this? You go, go along to Israel, you go into Yad Vashem, and you come to the, what is the Holocaust Memorial there, a very sobering experience. And again, you're thinking of all of these millions of deaths taken out, people taken out in their prime by the wickedness that was all around the Benites, which, of course, one of the concentration camps feeding into eventually the memorial that we have at Yad Vashem. So the question keeps coming back. If God is loving, all-powerful, why doesn't He intervene, use that power, stop the evil, does He not care? Now, what you find over the years is that multitudes have rejected God because of this very point, suffering. And sadly, most people, many even Christians, have no ready answer. Whenever the atheist comes and says, here's my platform, here's the stance I'm taking, what about all the death, what about all the suffering in the world, where is God when this is happening? Even Christians don't know how to respond. Charles Darwin rejected Christianity apparently after the death of his daughter. Annie's cruel death, we're told, destroyed Charles patterns of belief in a moral just universe. Later he would say that this period chimed the final death knell for his Christianity. And in that biography of his, again, they say, Charles now took a stand as an unbeliever, one of thousands, millions, who have struggled with this issue. And when Charles Darwin wrote his landmark book, on the origin of species, the evolutionary manual. In essence, he's writing a history of suffering and of death and the conclusion of a chapter that he put this title on, on the imperfections of the geological record. Darwin said, the modern world has arisen from the war of nature, from famine and death. And then he trains his gun on God. A being so powerful, and so full of knowledge as a God who could create the universe is to our 
finite minds, omnipotent and omniscient, and it revolts our understanding to suppose that His benevolence is not unbounded. For what advantage can there be in the sufferings of millions of lower animals throughout almost endless time? Those are Darwin's words. Charles Templeton may be known by some as formerly a very effective evangelist, but he rejected Christianity, and he said, in part because of the suffering that he saw around him, and he published a book in 1996. He entitled it, Farewell to God. And he gave his reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. And it all revolved around this. Why does God's grand design require creatures with teeth designed to crush, spines or rend flesh, claws fashioned to seize and tear, venom to paralyze, mouths to suck blood, coils to constrict and smother, even expandable jaws so that prey may be swallowed whole and alive. Nature, he says, is, in Tennyson's vivid phrase, red with blood in tooth and claw, and life is a carnival of blood. And so Templeton concludes, how could a loving and omnipotent God create such horrors as we have been contemplating? And isn't that what you see today? Isn't that what you hear? Certain people are saying, I don't see any God of love. All I see is children dying and suffering. I see people killing and stealing. I see disease and death, and I see it everywhere I look. Nature is red in tooth and claw. It's not a wonderful world. It's a horrible world. Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous evolutionary teacher today, he uses animal suffering as an argument against God's existence. He says, a benevolent designer might, you would idealistically think, seek to minimize suffering. It unfortunately doesn't happen in nature. Why should it? Terrible but true, the suffering among wild animals is so appalling that sensitive souls would be best not contemplating it. Darwin, he says, knew Whereof he spoke when he said in a letter to his friend Hooker, What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature. And he took that title, The Devil's Chaplain, for one of his previous books. But then you'll find that the atheist branches out a little bit, and he gives an extension like a hair extension to his argument here. A couple of hair extensions. And one of these two outliers is this. What about all of those atrocities that you see committed in the name of religion around the world, down through history? What are they likely to talk about? Well, they'll probably bring up the Spanish Inquisition. And when they do, I'll say, well, that had nothing to do with me. And nothing to do with my school of theology or thinking at all. I would totally reject that because it was my people 
who were subjected to the cruelty back then. That was an assault by Roman Catholicism on nonconformists. Pope Sixtus IV authorized the establishment of the Inquisition by a papal bull, a document, in 1478. And for centuries, we know, people were burned at the stake. They were stretched to death, or they, they were otherwise tortured just because they were not Roman Catholic. It's thought between 30,000 and 300,000 people were executed for heresy over this 350-year span. Although you'll find in books influenced by Rome, the figure is reduced way, way down. I've seen it sitting at 1,500 to 3,000, not 30,000 or 300,000 or even more. And then they'll probably pop up with the Salem witch trials in America in 1692 to 1693. And the way the publicity has gone on that, you would imagine, if you haven't read up the background, thousands of people were killed and burned and executed here en masse. In reality, less than 25 people were killed, and they were stopped. And I know Christians were involved in it professing Christians, but they were stopped when Christians, like the Puritan preachers, Cotton and Increase Mather, stood up against it, protested against the travesty of justice in those unfair trials, and they ended. They'll probably bring in the Crusades as well as an atrocity committed in the name of religion. Most historians agree, well, it was against Islamic aggression that the Crusades were formed. Most trace the start of them back to a sermon preached by Pope Urban II in November 1095. That was the spark to fuel a wave of military campaigns to take back the Holy Land from Muslim control. They tried to get Jerusalem back into their hands. But again, launched by the Pope. Let me make a comparison and flag this issue up right away. All of this barbarity and cruelty is at variance with the teaching of Jesus Christ. He did not endorse this, but it is very consistent with the teaching of Muhammad and Islam, you can check it out in Surah 66-9 where the Koran says, O prophet, strive against the disbelievers and the hypocrites and be stern with them. Hell will be their home, a hapless journey's end. Historian Sir Stephen Runciman notes, unlike Christianity, which preached a peace that it never achieved, Islam unashamedly came with the sword. But even when you take all of these acts and atrocities committed in the name of religion, no matter how spurious those religions are and were, all of that peels into almost insignificance. Whatever you think of what atheistic regimes have done in the 20th century alone, 
Been well documented, 77 million in communist China died, 62 million in the Soviet Gulag state. We have this, as already mentioned, evolutionary-based Nazi regime wiping out 6 million Jews, many others thought to be 21 million non-battle killings in total by the Nazis, 2 million murdered by the Khmer Rouge killing fields, and that is many more times in magnitude all of the deaths in all of the so-called religious wars put together in all of human history. And that was done by atheism and their regimes in one century alone. But then there's another extended argument here, and that's, do you know why we don't believe in God? See the guy down the street he says he's a child of God, saved by grace, and all of that, the atheist will say. Do you want to see the way he lives? A total hypocrite. Well, our Lord never endorsed hypocrites. That's the answer to that. He very much didn't. He went out of his way to deal with the Pharisees. Matthew 23 is the major case in point here. Now, he did not condemn the righteousness for which they claimed to stand in public. He said our righteousness had to be even more higher than theirs. Matthew 5 and verse 20. But what he did attack was them holding people to a standard they never were willing to hold themselves to. Hypocrisy, that was the charge Jesus led at their door. And when we see very clearly our Lord against this hypocrisy and saying He will judge it, that's not an argument at all in the arsenal of the atheist that is of any value. So we've thought of the rationale behind this atheistic question. We come to the response to this atheistic question. The answer, again, we're back to 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, where we have the counsel, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. But before we go any further, do atheists really have a case at all here? So, Mr. Atheist, here's where you're coming from. You're putting a question to me. What about answering your own question through your own belief system? You see, for an atheist to complain that the Christian God is evil or not doing anything but evil and therefore evil himself, he has to come with a standard of good and evil by which to judge him. And you know what? If we are simply, as the evolution says and the atheist tells us, if we are just evolved, pawned scum, where can we find out of that pawn scum an objective standard of right and wrong? Dawkins admitted the universe we see has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. This is an atheist talking, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So any idea of right and wrong, that's just coming out of some chemical process that occurs in the brain that happened to give a survival instinct and advantage to some of our alleged ape-like ancestors, but it's not a ruler, it's not a measurement, it's not a standard at all, but the Christian, believing in God through the Bible, he has a measuring line. 
He has an objective standard of morality that is way beyond what any individual might think himself because it was given by an objective, transcendent, moral lawgiver who was our creator and our God. The atheist argument crumbles right here. Now, my argument today is not that an atheist cannot live a good life. But I say he has no objective basis for any goodness that he has when he has just rearranged pawned scum. And even the evolutionist Yaron Lanier flagged up the problem when he said, there's a large group of people who are simply uncomfortable with accepting evolution because it leads to what they perceive as a moral vacuum. Whenever Dawkins was faced with that, he says, well, all I can say is, that's just tough. We have to face up to the truth. So here's a leading atheist admitting evolution doesn't put in any basis for moral living. Instead, what they have to do is borrow from Christian concepts find it very interesting that, and you'll know the name, Roy Hattersley, former Labour politician. He's an atheist, but he admires the Salvation Army. Hattersley said, I think it remains a vibrant organization because of its convictions. I'm an atheist, but I can only look with amazement at the devotion of the Salvation Army workers. I've been out among them on the streets, seeing the way they work among the people, the most deprived and disadvantaged and sometimes pretty repugnant characters. I don't believe that they would do this were it not for the religious impulse. And I often say, I never hear of atheist organizations taking food to the poor. You don't hear of atheist aid, rather like Christian aid. And I think, despite my inability to believe myself, I'm deeply impressed by what belief does for people like the Salvation Army. We have another politician, an atheist as well, Matthew Paris, and he wrote an article in the Times, and the title was, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And he subtitled his article by saying, Missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem, the crushing passivity of the people's mindset. And so these atheists, they come, they cannot attack the goodness of God from their own foundation and premises, because under their own system, there is no meaning to the term good. And so they have to hijack Christian morality. They're always on about try reason and try logic, and they're accusing you as a child of God today as leaving your brains at the door. On the 2nd of May, 2020, And they released their advert to coincide with a national day of prayer, the atheistic group Freedom From Religion Foundation. They placed an advert on a shockingly blasphemous cartoon in the New York Times. They were mocking Christianity, and they were saying, we need reason, not prayer, to combat the coronavirus. That's the group that has been bullying city councils, School boards telling them, get rid of nativity scenes, abolish prayer, throw out Bible verses, abandon the Ten Commandments. They want it all taken out of our culture as much as they possibly can. And they're saying, 
What we need to be governed by, guided by, is autonomous human reason. Reason is our God. Now, if you look through the pages of history, you'll find what autonomous human reason has done for civilizations such as the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks. It has at the heart out of them and collapsed them. And sadly, our Western culture has learned no lessons and is being governed today by that philosophy that is wreaking havoc everywhere we look. So, try reason. Well, not on its own. Reason has to be educated by revelation. Here's the atheistic argument summarized. They say, if God exists, then God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect. If God is all-powerful, then He has the power to eliminate all evil. If God is all-knowing, then He knows where evil exists. If God is morally perfect, He has the desire to eliminate all evil. Then they say, evil exists. Can't debate that. If evil exists and God exists, then either God doesn't have the power to eliminate all evil, or doesn't know where evil exists, or doesn't have the desire to eliminate all evil. Therefore, they conclude, God does not exist. That is their argument summarized. The first premise we agree with, number one, if God exists and He does, then God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect. And then you would expect in 2 to 4 that this is what God plausibly could do if this is what He is and if these are the attributes He has. The first two, very Christian. God is all-powerful. He has the power to eliminate all evil. He is all-knowing, and He knows where evil exists. That's for sure. But they work down through all of these premises, and they make the conclusions in 6 and 7, God does not exist. A Christian philosopher has come along, and he has argued, in fact, many philosophers, that premise four here should be extended. That's our time to put an extension in, and extended to be this. If God is morally perfect, then He has the desire to eliminate all evil unless, here's the extension, unless He has a good reason for allowing it. Dr. A.E. Wilbur Wildersmith said, or Wildersmith said, uh, he lived between 1915-1995, this is how God triumphs over evil, not by stopping it, but by using it to His greater glory. And hopefully before we end, we'll give some reasons why God does permit suffering. So that number four should be extended. Then there'll be no jarring between it and number five, which is reality. Evil does exist. And then beyond that, let's look at number four again. If God is morally perfect, then He has the desire to eliminate evil. But as far as the atheist is concerned, when does He want God to eliminate evil? He wants it done now, immediately. God should do it right now. Why is there evil at all if He is God? But is that really so? If God was going to get rid of evil immediately, there wouldn't be a single person here We'd all be gone. We'd all be obliterated if God had to get rid of evil immediately. Not one of us would be left. Not an atheist, not a Christian, not anybody, no humans at all. And so we can correct number five to evil exists for now, but will one day be destroyed, as the Bible says, or God has not got rid of evil just yet. 
And then we can work our principles through here, and they will all dovetail, and the conclusion will be, contrary to what the atheist is saying, the conclusion will be, God certainly does exist. These atheists lack a logical case against God, but it's still important to go further and explain where does evil come from, why has God allowed it, what is He doing about it, and what has He already done about it? And there's only one place to find an answer, and that is not in autonomous human reason, but it is doing what Paul did three Sabbath days in the city of Thessalonica. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He opened and alleged, this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And so we don't try human reason by itself, but we bring human reason over into revelation, and we begin to ask some leading questions. For example, the cradle of it all, where did evil come from, or indeed, did God create evil? Well, we know from Genesis 1 verse 31, God created this world, and originally He made it. It was described by Him as being very Good. So when he created moral beings, there was no actual evil. Evil is always a parasite on good. A wound can't exist without a body. The very idea that somebody might have a wound will presuppose he had a healthy body to begin with. And so there's good that God made, everything good, but evil comes in and leeches onto that good. The lack of evil extended back then to the animal kingdom. People, animals, they ate plants, not other animals. We find that in Genesis 1, verse 29, the verse 13, there was no violence, no painful suffering in this very good world that God made. And there's a biblical illustration of this in the book of Isaiah, the chapter 11, verse 6 to 9, the chapter 65, and the verse 25, and it said there, and you'll know the context of it, a lion and a lamb, a wolf, the calf, all sitting down, existing in harmony together. And the reason is, God says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain. And that's how it was back in paradise, right at the beginning, when God made all things. But then, Adam sinned. And there were consequences. And we read about the consequences in 1 Timothy 2, the verse 13 and 14. And because of Adam's sin, he was our federal head representing us. So we, through him, acquired a sinful nature that all of us had, Romans 5 and 12, right through that fifth chapter of Romans. We no longer could resist the drawing and the urging of that sinful nature. Psalm 51 and 5, Jeremiah 17 and 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans 7, 15 to 25, Paul is saying, I'm in a struggle here. I know the good things I should do, but then I find the evil things, and I end up doing them. Their sin lost them the true freedom that they were created with. Now we're, in Luther's words, we are in bondage to sin. And death and suffering, that is the penalty for sin. So God creates Adam, gives him one command, warns him, you will die or the process of death will begin in you if you disobey. Genesis 2 and 17, he sinned, 
God, to keep His Word, had to judge him, and judge him He did, because He's a true and a just God. Genesis 3 into verse 19. So, death is an intruder into God's world, not the way that God originally made it at all. And in the New Testament, death is called the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the wages of sin, Romans 6 and 23, and the Bible is consistent all the way through in linking death to sin. We sin in Adam, Romans 5, 12 to 19. We are by nature the children of wrath, Ephesians 2 and the verse 3. And the Bible therefore says the penalty here is death, not only for Adam's sin, but for our sin as well. And if you read down the passage we read this morning, Romans chapter 1, it's all about judgment and more judgment and yet still more judgment on sin because sin has consequences. In Genesis 1 and the verse 26 through 28, we're told that mankind was given dominion over the whole creation. So when he fell, the whole creation, it tumbled and was cursed as well. The fall was cosmic in its scope. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now, Romans 8 verse 20 to 22. That explains why our world is at war. Always flashpoints, always agitation and aggravation, always men committing evil one against the other. You know why? God has from that fall removed some of His sustaining power. And He's done that temporarily. At the time He judged this earth, because of its sin, judged it with death, He withdrew some of that sustaining power. And God has given us a taste today of what it is to live without Him. And to live without Him is to live in a world full of violence, full of death, full of suffering, full of disease. And if God had withdrawn all of His sustaining power, then the whole created order would have stopped existing. In Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, we are told that all things are held together right now by the power of the Creator, Christ Jesus our Lord. In Hebrews 1 and 3, by Him all things consist. The same thing again. He is the glue of the galaxies. But what has God done? In withdrawing Himself, He has said to man, right, that's what you want, that's what you'll have. Live it out and live with the consequences. And that is what Romans 1, 18 to 32 is all about. People are experiencing what they want, life without God, but they find it is with consequence. In the Old Testament, you and I are given a glimpse of what this world would be like if God was upholding everything 100%. I've said He's not. He's withdrawn to some degree. But if he was to be sustaining at 100%, you've got a picture, a couple of pictures, as to what life would be like. Deuteronomy 29 and 5, Nehemiah 9 and 21, we're talking about the wilderness here. The, the Israelites are wandering about in the wilderness for 40 years. And what happened? Their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Obviously, God miraculously upheld their clothing and their shoes and their feet so that He wouldn't wear out as what was happening in the rest of the creation. We can only imagine what the world would be like if God upheld every detail of it like that. 
In the book of Daniel, the second picture or illustration, we're out of the wilderness into the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were in there. They're walking into an intensely blazing furnace, and they come out, and there's not even the smell of smoke on their clothes. What had happened? Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, John 1 and 3, Colossians 1 and 15, upheld their bodies and their clothing in the middle of the fire. We're told that in Daniel 3 and 25. So nothing could be hurt and nothing could be destroyed. These illustrations help us to understand a little of what it could be like if God upheld every aspect of his creation, nothing would fall apart. But at the present time, we're not living in that world. We're living in a place where everything is decaying. All around us we do see what everybody sees, death and suffering and disease, God's judgment against sin, His withdrawal of some of His sustaining power to give us what we ask for, a taste of life without God. Norman Geisler, Christian apologist, wrong and long ages of the earth, of course, but good on other things, he said, responding to Templeton, former evangelist, in sum, everything God created was good. What changed things was the fall. When God was told, in effect, to shove off, he partially did. Romans 8 says all creation was affected. That includes plant life, human beings, animals, everything. God's plan was not designed to be this way. It's only this way because of sin. And then a note of hope. Ultimately, it will be remedied. And we thank God the Bible tells us that. And in that eternal state, redeemed humanity no longer will even have the potential for sin. Adam and Eve created with the ability not to sin, but they sinned. After the fall, we had no ability not to sin. We had to sin, and we do. In the eternal state, humans will have no ability to sin. In heaven, it will be sin-free. That's what the Bible tells us, and that's what makes heaven such a wonderful place. But then we're still on the question here, why did God not stop Adam and Eve from sinning? Why did He not intervene? He would need to have come down to them, removed their volition, their choice at that particular time. But then the question is for the atheist who's asking, why did God not stop Adam and Eve from sinning? My question to him is, how much choice, how much volition should He remove? Would an atheist really be happy with this solution? Because if God stops evil murderers, what if he also stops evil thoughts? Jesus said they're behind evil deeds, Matthew 15, 19. But maybe the atheist would be happy enough for God to stop murderers, but wants evil thoughts to still circulate in his own head because those give him pleasure. Well, should God give all atheists then a splitting headache? When they think one of those militarily atheistic thoughts against him they would protest against that liberty being taken from them most mightily. Anybody ever read Robinson Crusoe? Interesting to see the way Daniel Defoe, the author, sets this all out. He's marooned the title character on a desert island for 28 years. He's rescued and befriended a native that he named Friday, taught him Christianity, taught Friday about the devil, his origin, rebellion against God, how he's opposing men as well. And this conversation went on. 
Well, says Friday, but you say God is so strong, so great. Is he not much strong, much mighty as the devil? Oh, yes, yes, says I. Friday, God is stronger than the devil. God is above the devil. Therefore, we pray to God to tread the devil down under our feet, to help us resist his temptations and to quench his fiery darts. But, Friday says again, if God is much stronger, much mightier than the wicked devil, why God no kill the devil? So make him no more do wicked. Crusoe eventually responded, God will at last punish him severely. He is reserved for the judgment. He is to be cast into this bottomless pit to dwell with everlasting fire. It didn't satisfy Friday. And he comes back and he says, repeating Crusoe's words, reserve at last. Me no understand. But why not kill the devil now? Not kill him great time ago. And Crusoe responded, you may as well ask me why God does not kill you or I. When we do wicked things here that offend him, we are preserved to repent and be pardoned. In other words, God in preserving this world and you and I in it is exercising mercy and grace. That's what he's doing. Is there any purpose in suffering? Paul found the key to suffering to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I can glory, strange phrase, glory in my infirmities. And his infirmities included a whole list of torture and beatings and imprisonment and stonings and shipwrecks and robbery and infirmities and exhaustion and hunger and thirst and finally execution. But he says, Jesus' resurrection is the key to me making sense of my suffering. Without the resurrection, he tells us, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain. We are of most men totally miserable. And his letters are filled, Paul's letters, with practical reasons for the suffering of God's people, even when they've done nothing wrong. We can boil it down to five points, and we will zip through them here. Suffering perfects us, as it did Job and Christ. Job 23 and 10, Hebrews 5, 8 to 9. Suffering helps us to know Christ. Philippians 3 and 10. Suffering makes us better servants of others. I've been through the valley. I know how you're feeling. I can help you. Here's what helped me. Hebrews 2 and 18, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Suffering prepares us for greater glory in heaven. Paul gets out the scales. And in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, he says, On the one side, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Suffering completes Christ's sufferings. And that's a strange one, but that's what we're told in Colossians 1 and 24. We'll take a sermon to expound that one. So we have the rationale behind this atheistic question, the response to this atheistic question, very briefly, the restoration despite this atheistic question. Is God doing anything about death? Is God doing anything about suffering? People who accuse God of just sitting back and doing nothing, they're missing a vital truth. In reality, God has already done everything you would expect a loving God to do. Let me repeat that. God has already done everything you would expect a loving God to do. And I'll tell you what, and He's done infinitely more. 
He has done infinitely more. What has He done? The Son of God became a man, took a body on Himself. Why? So that He could suffer. Psalm 40. Endured suffering, a horrible death on man's behalf. And there you have all those Bible references proving that point. The Son of God rose from the grave so that it wasn't on some kind of a personal crusade here, but He's obtaining victory for us so that we could obtain eternal life. If we believe in Him, John 3 and verse 16, key fundamental text of Scripture. And then, the Son of God, here's what God is doing still. He sympathizes with our sorrows. Christ's suffering, His death, His agonies mean that God can empathize with our suffering because He has experienced it. He has come the path of suffering, the Via Doloroso. His followers have a great high priest who, we're told, is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And therefore, he says, come boldly, you people, onto the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For he's telling us, I know the help you need, because I've come this way. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, our earthly death is not the end. You see, the Bible is never embarrassed to talk about the question of suffering. It doesn't shy away from it. God's past judgments have included every type of suffering imaginable, and He repeatedly asserts His absolute power, His total authority over men's lives. And who art thou, O man, that replieth against God? And yet, in one of His most memorable teachings, Luke 16, Verse 19 to 31, he gives us the key to understanding the apparent injustices of this world. We have a wicked rich man living in splendor. We have a faithful beggar, Lazarus, sitting at the rich man's gate, covered in sores, eating table scraps. But the story doesn't end there. There's an eternal world to come where God will make all things right. And this hope, Paul's hope, of the resurrection is the key to understanding our suffering. There was an evolutionary atheistic philosopher, Bertrand Russell, and he challenged, I would invite any Christian to come with me to a children's ward of a hospital to watch the suffering that is being there endured, and then to persist in the assertion that those children are so morally abandoned as to deserve what they're suffering. Now, no Christian claims that. Our Lord in Luke 13 talks about the Tower of Siloam falling, but He doesn't say it's because those men were more wicked than anybody else. He says, it's an invitation, a reminder to all of us, life is short, and except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. But a minister who actually had experience, unlike Bertrand Russell, had experience with dying children. Bertrand Russell never got his hands dirty with such things. He challenged Russell to explain, what can you offer a child like that? As an atheist, what can you offer? An atheist can only say, and I know it's an old expression. Sorry, chap, you've had your chips. It's the way the cookie crumbles. Nothing we can do about it. That's the end of everything for you. But the Christian has hope. This life isn't the end. There's a future restoration. Acts 3 and 21, a place made by God where there'll be no violence, there'll be no death. God has not given up on that original creation of His. And we have an entire Bible vocabulary that the atheist doesn't have. 
We talk about these are God's words, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, resurrect. And the atheist has none of that hope. His language is totally redundant. Well, how long will this suffering and death go on? People who complain about that need to understand God's perspective on time. God dwells in eternity. He's loving, prepare, lovingly preparing His people to spend an eternity with Him. And Paul says in Romans 8 and 18, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so, suffer now, but in view of eternity. It can't be compared to the glory to come. That home is being prepared. There'll be no more death or suffering. Revelation 21, Revelation 22 tells us that. But for those who live on in their atheism, for those who live on tasting what the world is like without God, those who live on without repentance and faith in Christ, there is a place of eternal separation from God. The Bible warns that that second death, that eternal separation, Revelation 21 and 8. Should we bother trying to evangelize the atheist? When we face their mocks, when we get their rants, when these God-haters are in our faces, maybe we should say, oh, they're ignorant bigots, and we get angry. No, we shouldn't. No, we shouldn't. That's not Christ's way. I close, I do close with this. Pen and teller are two illusionists. They're very talented men, but they're very crude. And frequently what they're doing is poking fun at God's creation and poking fun at the Bible and poking fun at Jesus Christ. Pen, full name, Pen Gillett. He tells us about an encounter he had with a Christian man after one of his shows. I don't know how the Christian abided sitting in the show, but he did it for this reason. He came up to Penn at the end, and he said, I would love to give you a gift. Would you receive it? That gift was a Bible, a copy of God's holy word. That atheist, blown away, he saw the real concern behind the action. He could sense the love, and that's the key. And here is what Penn said. And it's a challenge to me. And it will be a challenge to you if you're saved today. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make them just socially awkward. He's saying you need to tell them because it's real and because you have love in their, your heart for them. But here's his baiting question. Here's what he says. How much do you have to hate somebody to not, to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And you can get the testimony of former atheists all over the internet. 
Praise God, he has saved them. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them who are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. We are salt if we're saved, we're light. Let the salt be working, let the light be shining. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy hand upon us. We pray that Thou will give us understanding in these things and an answer, an answer to the atheist when he comes with his objections and comes with his questions. Arm us to help, to rescue, to see him saved, and one for God's eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.